Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we welcome Don Schminke, author of High Altitude Leadership. Don, welcome. Thank you. Such a pleasure to have you here. Um, so let's start off by you telling us about your professional background and how you ended up even becoming a speaker. I don't have any professional background. I have to. <laughs> Actually, I, I started off in planetary physics. That's where I, my, my background really was. Uh, um, but when I was at MIT, I ended up um, uh, starting studying humans, and, and uh, that became a passion. Uh, that's when I went to Hopkins and did some graduate work there, and I started teaching there. And um, I started running into a lot of executives in the MBA program that was uh, – uh, they, they were sort of a little disappointed with management theory effectiveness. So I started uh, biological studies on that. Next thing I know, here I am. And are, are you still teaching at Hopkins? No, no, I had a, I was on a plane too much. I ended up having to stop teaching. So um, why did you and your co-author, uh, Chris Warner, and, and tell us about Chris's background, uh, because he has a super interesting background. Why did you guys write this book? Um, it was I was climbing uh, with Chris uh, in South America, and um, I noticed that because I'm always looking for extreme environments to do leadership research studies. And so I'll do, you know, expeditions and in, in various uh, extreme places. This one, um, it was kind of connected to a Hopkins research uh, project. And I didn't know who Chris was, but as I was climbing with him, he was leading the expedition. I realized, wow, this guy has uh, done some amazing things. He's led, you know, a couple hundred of the most dangerous expeditions. No one's ever died, which is really hard to say in, in the mountaineering circles. Um, and you probably saw him on CNN whenever there's a, a mountaineering disaster. He's like the go-to guy. He, he's really the top, I think, the top rescue climber in the world. And I realized that what a great possibility to study humans and death zones to see how we biologically react, because that's an indicator of our leadership instincts in a very rare laboratory setting. So um, I got together with him after the expedition. And he said, yeah, NBC uh, wants to film me on the K2 summit uh, attempt, his third attempt. He had failed twice before. And since that is the death mountain, I thought, wow, this will be a fabulous project. That's how I got hooked up. Yeah, those stories are really interesting in the book, and especially that one Sherpa who was a world-famous climber uh, falling himself to his own death, totally unexpected, and people yeah. dying in avalanches in a whole variety of different ways. Uh, make me think twice about doing that. Yeah, well, uh, NBC could not find a cameraman. Uh, they were all busy. <laughs> of course they were. You know, with the death rate, I think I was told it's about a third of the climate. It's 10 times more dangerous than Everest because it's literally a climb. You know, Everest is mostly a hike, but um, uh, with K2, you're vertically climbing. And so he self-filmed. I mean, so when you see the video from NBC, that was him and a couple of Americans on his team. Uh, they linked him uh, via satellite. So we did, I think we're the only authors that wrote the book live doing death zone studies. And so how, we actually, how, how much training did you have to do for that? Um, I, on, for climbing generally, uh, if you're with a good expedition company, you would train for a few months um, before you go up. K2, I wasn't on because K2 is just, I'm just not going to risk a one third death possibility. <laughs> On a research project. You're not that kind of gambler. Yeah. Yeah. They link him with me via satellite while he was on the death mount. And I was back in my living room having a glass of wine. But that was a risk I was willing to take. <laughs> <laughs> that wine can do, do you end. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, so. and so when you're doing that and you say it's three months of preparation, is that like every day? And do you have a, a trainer and, and you... 
end up getting in top tip shape and running and lifting weights and all that kind of thing? Well, generally, um, some basic skills training is like ropes and nodding and things that people can get in any climbing gym, although mountain climbing is different than than wall climbing um, because you're not using your fingers a lot. Otherwise, they would freeze off. Um, but you still need to know basics around ropes. A good expedition company, however, will uh, take you up at base camp levels and teach you certain uh, techniques. But the, so the training really is getting your ATP and oxygen conversion levels to a higher rate and also your body physically to a higher level to where you can actually, you know, climb for many hours without um, exhausting yourself too much. So a lot of, you're in the best shape of your life when you did that. Yeah, I think so. I think um, it certainly pushed me on, the, on the, this climb where I met him uh, was the highest active volcano in the world in uh Ecuador, it's since blown, it has since blown up. So that the peak, I don't think is there anymore, but we were probably one of the last climbers to be on top of this mountain, but it was, it was pretty rigorous. Yeah. I, I, I told him, I said, Chris, I think I pushed myself farther than I thought I would push myself on this particular climb. Uh, a question from the audience. Is it fair to say that you climb the mountain in quotations, climb the mountain before you ascend? Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, it. It depends. It depends on the climber. Some people, yeah, they, it's a visualization. Um, but when you're there in the moment, it can all go to crap. You know what I mean? Uh, because plans change. There's, it could be an avalanche. That could be a crevice opens up. Um, somebody's getting sick and needs to be unroped uh, from altitude issues. So all kind of things uh, can go wrong, which is a good example, um, like in my lectures and when I do corporate workshops, it's, um, you know, adaptation is an essential feature for successful execution of strategy. And mountaineering is one of those great experiences of having to adapt. Um, with so many books on leadership, what was your approach to bring something new to the discussion? Uh the failure rates of books on leadership. <laughs> That's them. That was the students that were um, at Hopkins and in the graduate school were complaining. And they actually asked me, could this be primal? And said, I'd done a lot of work earlier in, in biological measurement and things like that at MIT. I thought, well, this could be interesting. So I, I went to uh, Google Scholar to start looking at what was happening, and there were millions of papers published on management theory failure rates. And when I saw a 70 to 90% failure rate on an industry that's you know hundreds, hundreds of billions of dollars spent, I thought, what's going on? And that really took me into a, a different area of research. And so that's where it started. And then I I was in, involved with some CEO groups and they were correlating with this as well. So what was happening is I was able to test some of these concepts and theories and um, and it just took off. I mean, to, to date, I probably trained about 30,000 CEOs over the past 25 years or so. And so it's a good laboratory for me to test these ideas. But yeah, I mean, um, if it was we're, we publish what, 35,000 books a year on, on management business stuff. I mean, and if, if we're, <laughs> we're publishing more than cancer research, but at least we're making progress in cancer research. And we're still looking at lingering management issues that have been around for a thousand years. So I thought that was a fascinating way to begin this, uh, this area of study. And since then, all my speeches and workshops and books have been revolving around that. So as a scientist, I think it's a, it's a great area to, to study. What was biological? What was it that you studied? Oh, I was looking at, they were asking me, could this be primal? Could it be something in our genetics? Could it be something that uh, the reason management theory is failing at such high rates? Could it be we're ignoring something that's, that exists uh, in our cells? And what we did is we actually found out that, yes, the, there's a lot going on in our bodies that either will help us or hurt us when we try to implement uh, leadership theories. Question from the audience. How is failure rate established? How do you know that somebody who reads a book fails and what he reads because he doesn't put it into effect or because the theory doesn't work? How do you know this? Well, generally, you um, what a lot of the scholarly articles do is they look at, okay, the, the, intent, the intended outcome was supposed to be this. 
How many times did that occur? And, and a lot of times like authors will, you know, they'll get it. And I mean, what Tom Peters announced, what's 10 years ago, that the whole in search of excellence thing, he kind of made it up. <laughs> but Mike Hammer, who actually gave me some great advice when he did reengineering the corporation, finally said, you know, we forgot about humans. That's why it failed. And um, when you look at a lot of these, um, these studies done on successful implementations, the results that they're finding uh, aren't what we thought they were. And now why they are failing is... Um, is something that we discovered when we were studying humans in death zone environments. And one of the aspects was tool seduction. So whenever Chris pulled a dead climber off a mountain, they were clutching their tools and he's pulled a lot of dead humans off of mountains. But I said, Chris, you know, we're seeing the same thing in dead companies. They're all clutching their tools. They're clutching their, uh, you know, their, you know, the, you know, their structures and their processes and their best-selling books and their ERP programs and their, all their systems and they're clutching them right into bankruptcy. So I think we get seduced by our tools, which later our research showed, in fact, I was just doing a speech tour in uh, Quebec City in Canada, and um, CEOs love this because they're nodding their heads like, yeah, tool seduction. I said, well, why are we seduced? And we found out that the reason is that I think it's the biological instinct for safety. So humans, as any animal, wants to be safe, and generally we, find safety and getting control, okay, control the world, control the environment. And the best way to get control is by analyzing the world. And so in the analysis, uh, we can develop tools and then we think the tools can save us. And then we die clutching onto our tools. Nothing wrong with tools. It's the seduction piece. I think we, come, we become over-focused on analysis and we're missing such so much uh, a bigger picture because the anthropologists that were on our team when we did this research pointed out that tools don't produce results. They're just tools. You know, a fool with a tool is still a fool. <laughs> yeah, of course. But what drives results is human behavior, human decision. And a lot of times you throw tools at a problem. If it doesn't change human behavior, you've just wasted everything. But then it led us to this very ancient discovery that the only way to change human behavior is by altering human belief. So we began a very deep and a study on belief management and how leaders change beliefs of humans. And that explained everything that explains why the failure rates are so high and how to fix it. Yeah. And we see that good and bad in terms of changing people's belief values, right? Especially in politics and how the country's become divided in the world divided over the past 10 years, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, a question from the audience. In your research, what were the top three to five key success factors for successful CEO leaders? Uh, I guess don't get too caught up on your success. Okay. <laughs> You know, the, the, I mean, the greatest leaders are all, we're always questioning and always learning. Like we work with a lot of corporations in many different industries, and we generally do not take on leaders who already know everything because they're not helpful. We, we can't do anything with them. Um, but leaders that are searching and growing, uh, that's always a great thing. Um, and Mark Levy, who's actually here with me, is my coach, and he helped me pull together um, a book that I'm going to be releasing uh, that has to do with a lot of looking at how we can lose powerfully. We teach winning, but we don't teach how to lose powerfully. And when you look at all these successful entrepreneurs, these successful leaders, and you pull back the curtain, they are at the end of a series of losses. And it's how they how they engage those losses that made them powerful. So I think we should be teaching losing more than we are. So um, Mark helped me create this book called Winners and Losers. And hopefully that'll be up maybe in September timeframe. But in that research study, it was a fabulous, uh, just pulling this out and seeing it work. Clearly we're gonna have to have you both back here uh, for that. So we got to get you on the schedule uh, for sure about that. And what, you know, you really knew, you do never learn anything from winning. What, what do you learn most from losing? Yeah, the, the CEOs and, 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 and of course, when I talk about CEOs, I don't mean only current, but the ones going back thousands of years, there's a, there's a, there's a, a learning experience. There is a, um, 
And it's more than like fail fast and, you know, a lot of the buzzwords we, we use today. It was really about a, a personal journey. I mean, being in the face of just uh, hitting failure in a way where it's not just an unpleasant experience, but like your life could be at risk or, you know, the things you value are, are being put on the table. I mean, it's a significant problem. And in there, I think entrepreneurs that are successful uh, use that for not only their growth, but their insights, having to accept areas where maybe they were wrong, um, to start listening and viewing the world differently. And it's this whole issue of paradigm shifting that we've known for so long that I think occurs in a great leader. And that is why you have people like, uh, you know, Jobs and, you know, uh, Elon and, you know, Richard Branson, who are at the end of a lot of failures, but they, they engage it like it's part of the possibility. Like the rocket that just went up. I don't know if you read the yeah, but yeah, flew up. Elon yeah. was like, <laughs> it's like, this is probably not going to work. <laughs> he's like, I get a 50, 50% chance. This thing won't open the launch pad. It's just too complex. But, you know, he's engaging in the loss in a way where it's like, we're going to learn so much when this thing fails. And of course, it, it actually went pretty successfully to an altitude that um, was a success. I mean, it's, and, and it blew up and they're now looking at the data on that. But uh, my- I was thought, thought it was interesting. I read a biography on Bruce Lee that whenever he lost, oh, um, he never minded losing. Uh, he said, I, I learned so much in losing that he'd asked the guy to show him how he beat him. And if he beat somebody, as soon as he beat him, he offered them the chance to learn from him about how he did whatever that move was. Yeah. And that's how I think we should help each other. Yeah. And that's what he thought. And he said in the beginning, people were just so shocked that he would offer the guy he beat because no one had ever done that before. People just wanted to keep that to themselves as their own secret sauce. Uh, Question from the audience. Gina uh, Ramadi in Good Power says that comfort and growth are not compatible. Do you agree? Is that not the reverse of your biological primal nature of seeking safety? (laughs) <laughs> That's great. Great question. Yeah. One of the dangers that was in the high altitude leadership book when we wrote it uh, was comfort and how that could be a danger. And because uh, that can stop uh, progress and survival in, uh, in a mountaineering situation. And so when and Chris, my co-author, has some incredible stories uh, uh, about that actually happening. So, yeah, comfort is is, I think, what drives tool seduction. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we want to be safe. We want to be comfortable. So give us the tools to make sure that we can be safe and, and comfortable. But then what happens is we lose the power to create. We lose the power to venture in and take risk. Because when I do my workshops with management teams, it's like I have this model. And in the model, we have the tools down here driven by analysis. But up top are the beliefs. And people say, well, why aren't we seduced to beliefs? I says, because it's a suffering area. It's a painful area. It's an area of risk and uncertainty. It's, a, it's in the domain of art. And art is different than analysis because there's no checklist. There's no books and equations and formulas. I mean, you're out there creating. And so it could be a little scary. But You're going you're to put people on Harvard out of business if you keep saying that there's no formulas and all these other things that Harvard and Wharton totally believe in. I know. And some of them are really good clients of mine. And and, uh, I appreciate a lot of um, the work and support they've given me over the past. But but they generally uh, get it. I mean, George Stock, um, who started the lean manufacturing revolution, I just had dinner with him in Miami last week. And he was um, and he's been gracious. I've been so privileged to run into these brilliant people and uh, let them want to have time spent time with me. And um, but he wrote a disruption paper recently in Harvard Business Review. But the one before that was on the OODA loop, which was a a jet fighter uh, technique that was used to uh, have a high kill ratio with an inferior inferior aircraft. And so that itself becomes applied in business because, um, you know, when and and people that are in this that I meet, get all, they totally agree with what I'm saying. I mean, they, they, they know that there's high failure rates and, 
And, and the good ones are challenging, you know, readers and their students to think differently about all that. So, yeah, I don't think I'll be putting them out of business. <laughs> Don, how old are you now? I'm uh, 67. OK, so and, and your coach, Mark Levy, is watching you here. And I think most of us wonder, hey, you're already 67. Why do you need a coaching? You're the one coaching all these CEOs. So why do you have a coach and what's the benefit of you having a coach? Well, as I get older, I realize um, there's so many more mistakes to make and so little time left. So what I what I try to do is help people uh, move through those mistakes very quickly. And, and Mark has been fabulous and challenging, you know, my assumptions and my beliefs. And yeah, I, I think I'm going to keep doing that. I'll probably stop when I'm 105. I think I'm going to retire then. But maybe, yeah, you'll get bored. You'll have to go right back at it. Um, another question from the audience, considering women make up a very tiny fraction of leaders, very few of CEOs of big businesses and countries are women. Would you say that biology is playing into this lack of representation of women or are there other factors that contribute? Can women, uh, can women be biologically good leaders and why? Wow. How much time do we have? Like yeah, a, a couple hours more. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that question opens up fascinating work. I mean, we've done a lot of work in uh, in genetics and evolutionary psychology, and there's been some remarkable work. Like one of the people that I've been really grateful uh, for spending some time with me is Dr. David Buss, who started the evolutionary psychology laboratory. He left Harvard. He's now in Austin, and um, you know, I had lunch with him. We, we connect, but when I read his work, it, it is so politically incorrect, but so scientifically accurate. And this whole thing around um, the whole male-female energy thing, I think, opens up a few questions. Like, I think I think we should, in fact, I had this book in New York, New York wouldn't publish it. It was too controversial, but the point is, I, I think we should stop teaching women to be men and stop teaching men to be women. I think we should accept who we are as our biology goes. And in a, in a lot of um, what I'm seeing in history, uh, women always had a place for that. In fact, they just did some genetic research on battlefields in, in the Japan, because my first book was on the samurai. Code of the code of the executive that Oxford University gave me permission to use. And I was, it was fascinating because I always see these pictures and there were a lot of women in these pictures. And then when they did the genetic research on battlefields, they found out that I, I, I forget what it was like 25 or 30% of, of blood was from, was from females who were in battle as well. So I think we may need to reconsider. And what I wanted to do in this book is I think we should have uh, a gender-based organizations in terms of like accepting our genders, like gender driven organizations that don't try to hide who we are, but embrace who we are, because there's so much power when we come together as a team, because nature designed us to be a team. So we should stop going against each other. For instance, I was in one situation where uh, it, it was a sales thing and I was working with a client. And uh, I said something politically incorrect. I said, well, you've got this, 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 this guy going out to try to close this deal with this committee, and it's a lot of money. How come you're not having Sharon go with him? And I said, well, she's busy. I said, no, you don't understand. She's going to sense things in the room he is not going to understand. And she's going to be able to see things and feel things that are happening in the group that he's going to be totally oblivious, oblivious to. Now, on the other hand, he may have a little level of assertiveness that will help him close, but the team together uh, works. And I do this myself. I have a, a couple of people work with me. Uh, they're both named Susan. And when they're in a room with me, I'm listening to them because they're pointing out stuff I'm not seeing. Or if we're doing an interview or some coaching with a CEO, they're there and we're, we're bouncing off each other's end, uh, energies. It's really, really powerful. But I think we're so politically afraid that we don't want to accept that we have biology. Uh, I, I wonder this. What defines a high altitude leader? When we were... Uh, Looking at this book, the what we were looking at is the is the leader able to engage danger uh, as an as an 
as in um, we, we found in climbing uh, that, and the reason we wrote the book here is also in corporations and, 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 and startups. I mean, you have to engage a level of danger. A high altitude leader is used to it, willing to engage and knows how to handle it. So it's different than saying, well, well, we have to have this leadership style. Or I just read this book and I need to be this level leader. or I need to be this style of leader. or I need to be a servant leader. And that's all great, except does it drive result? Does it drive speed? And I think we're teaching leadership wrong. I think we should be starting with speed to results because that's what a leader should be doing. Now, the, the style you choose to make that happen uh, should serve that purpose because the last thing you want to do is be a really great leader in a bankrupt company and then tell everybody they're out of a job. That's probably not doing your job. So I think we need to switch the whole way of teaching leadership. And um, so high altitude is really a look at what dangers of leadership exist and who are those that are willing to engage engage those dangers and, and survive. Has the pandemic changed leadership at all? It's interesting. I, uh, I have had a lot of CEOs uh, when I'm doing my workshops or when I do this inside companies, these workshops, that question comes up like, well, you know, we have to change our leadership because we have employees that are remote. They're not here. Uh, how do we, what do we do now? And they're shocked when I say, do the same thing you've been doing for 5,000 years. It's like, what are you talking about? I said, we've had remote companies for thousands of years. Oh, how do you think armies work? <laughs> How do you think religious movements work? Everybody's distributed. And then we get into how to trigger grouping instincts in humans. And we say, what have you done to trigger tribal grouping instincts? We're a grouping species. We like to be part of the tribe. We like, but what are you doing? And they're like, they have no idea. I said, look, here's what is very simple. Look at your symbols, look at your rituals, look at your magic. And when you pull those things together, they will follow you, even though they may be distributed to the ends of the world. And when you look at this in terms of, let's say, military or, or successful companies that have people distributed around, there are certain symbols and rituals they share or magic moments that they discuss that bring their beliefs together. It's all about belief management. So I think in a sense, has it changed? I'm not sure. I mean, I've seen these patterns through, through centuries. I'm not sure. And people are saying, well, what's AI going to do? I don't know. It's another tool. Uh, what did we do with electricity? Or remember when we had calculators? Everybody was in a panic. Oh, my God. Calculators in schools. Oh, people aren't going to learn math. You know, it's a total chaos. Uh -huh. We still learn math. You know, so anyway, I'm going off on another topic. here. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, for sure. Um, question from the audience. What's the biggest blind spot that leaders have today that has had the biggest impact based on your how researching it, and you need to explain the acronym how. Oh, the, um, I mean, when I was talking about what and how in the model. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, the, the, the what stuff is, you know, that type of tool is what, what structure do I need? What's my, what are my goals? What are my measurements? What are my, all that stuff. But the how stuff is, what are the processes that we have? What are the systems that we, what's the training? What are our policies? So there's a lot of the what and how tools, which are great tools and we need them and we need books to tell us how to do them better. Um, but, but if it doesn't alter the beliefs of people, then those, those tools fail. And, um, but, but the biggest blind spot, that's interesting. Um, you know, it's funny, the Pacific Institute, I'm uh, now engaging with them. They want me to come in and uh, be an adjunct to their research and development. And, and Lou Tice, 50 years ago, started the movement on mindsetting. So when you use mindset, he's the guy that like invented this thing. And he even invented something called find your why. This is way before the start of the why stuff, which I thought was interesting too. But, with, but in that, he came up with this blind spot concept. And I think for each of us, it's probably a little different uh, to answer. Like, what do I see most commonly? I, I think I think it's seeing something. It's getting back to the OODA loop. Um, let me explain what that means first. Um, George Stogg is a fascinating guy if you ever want to get him as a guest. But it's, it's uh, pilots that could observe. That's the first O. Orient. That's the second O. Like, what is what does my observations mean? You know, what is what does all this data mean? And then 
the D is, is decisions. In other words, what are my possible decisions to make? And then A is act. So the pilots that could go through this loop to observe, orient, decide, and act faster was able to put the enemy in a situation where the enemy lost control and they started to panic. Once they panicked, then that pilot had the edge. Now, it's interesting. The same thing happens in companies, doesn't it? The same thing happens in companies. And so I would think, I would think a, blind, a blind spot is something that interrupts that loop. In other words, are you observing enough or have you observed, but you haven't really thought about what does this really mean? Like a lot of times people say, Don, how did you get this company to go two to three times or 10 times in sales within a few years? You know, that's not normal. It's like all I'm doing is altering their beliefs. So I can grow companies two or three or 10 times faster only if I can access that belief pattern and see what things mean. So as an example, we have our market segmentations. Great. Why? Why do you have those segmentations? Have you ever thought about maybe there's another way of segmenting? Like what business are you really in? I mean, those are the questions that are, can be challenging, but the blind spot is if we're not able to say, oh, wow, I thought I was in this business, but I'm really in that business. But we had a company going under that was in the data analytics for banking industry. And it wasn't until I was able to shift the belief that, no, you're in the customer intimacy business that they they it, it took off because they were at 5 million in revenue, losing half a million a year. They grew five times in a few years, lost all of their clients, but replaced them with these, these new clients. So I, I would say it's that's the blind spot. It's not seeing. And then the, that company ended up in the right place where they should be for what their skill set was, right? Yeah. And that's what you helped them do. Uh, another question from the audience. Uh, Simon Syntax says that the best example of leadership is parenthood. Would you agree? And if yes, what are your reasons? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Well, I think uh, parenting is really, really important. In fact, a lot of the problems we're having in society today is due to poor parenting. So don't get me stuck. That's all another topic. <laughs> I think we have better parenting some of these issues, especially in this country. I mean, I come back into the country and I'm thinking the whole headlines are going to change. Who got shot today? Mm -hmm. We lose more people than we lose in war. Fire on citizens, killing citizens. So I think parenting has a lot, a lot to do it, with it. Um, but in terms of leadership, yeah, I've, I, um, I've had people say that, you know, like my dad or my mom said this to me, and actually that has helped me because of the wisdom they bestowed upon us. So I think we have a lot of responsibilities. If, you've, if you have children, um, I think your, your role is a, lot, is a lot bigger for changing the world. And a lot of it has to do with how you're developing the child. So who in the public eye isn't a high altitude leader? Like who are we watching that you would consider a high altitude leader? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I think the, I think it comes down to who are we watching? Right. <laughs> and the, and the ones, of course, Elon's in the press a lot now, and that's, that's great. Um, but I think like uh, th this opens up an interesting question because a lot of times we think that leaders are the ones that everybody likes. They're, they're charismatic. They, 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 um, and I'm like, okay, we're teaching leadership wrong again. I don't think followers follow leaders. Now I know this is crazy because we teach that followers follow leaders. If this came out when Apple was funding the creation research that my, um, um, my Cameron Lugman, my colleague at, at the Institute, he started uh, working with Apple to understand how the brain works for innovation. Because we never had this before. We had creativity exercises and this and that. But he developed an incredible program at Cupertino. And what was happening, though, when I was following this is Steve Jobs had died. So they needed to figure this out. But when they wrote books about Steve Jobs, they weren't very flattering. I mean, they were like, yeah, he did this wrong. He was an asshole. He pissed people off. And I thought about that. And I thought, wow, how does a guy who's an asshole violating everything we're teaching in management school create the most powerful company in the world? And why has no one ever asked that question? But I thought to ask it. And what I found out was that there are a lot of people who are assholes who created great organizations. <laughs> 
I think I think um, I think Forbes what is it, did an article on like, uh, do you have to be a jerk to be a CEO? And I don't think you have to. I mean, I and when I when I tell this story in my workshops and my keynotes, I'm like, hey, I'm not telling you to go be an asshole, although I may be a, a little late for some of you because <laughs> <laughs> you already are. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is, people aren't following you. They're following the story what we call the compelling saga. We stole it from the Vikings. The story you represent, like what's the story you represent that presents a need ahead of the people that is so formidable that they're willing, they're, they're, they're realizing that they need each other to achieve it together and they're willing to suffer and sacrifice to do it. Now that, that's a leader. And that's what happens. Um, you know, General Patton was an asshole. In fact, they just published that Mother Teresa was an asshole. What Mother Teresa? You can Google it. But anyway, yeah. the point is, the point is, what story do you represent to your people? What's the compelling saga that you represent? Because that's what they're following. Now, it's great if you're a nice person, too. All right. But I think that's the point. But don't you think like some way like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, they're great uh, visionaries, but the people behind them, uh, you know, Steve Wozniak and Tim Cook, are the ones who are actually managing the day-to-day. So they realize that their strengths aren't managing people day-to-day. It's setting the agenda and people get behind the agenda and they're excited about the agenda. But the people, if because if, if those guys were actually managing people day-to-day, the really smart people would never stay there. They would just leave because the amount of bullshit they'd have to deal with, that would be too much. The people who can't get a job, they'd stay there and then he would never accomplish what he accomplished. Do you think there's something to that? Yeah, I think what it is, if you have a compelling enough saga that people will be attracted to that journey. And a lot of these uh, guys that you're mentioning, they were successful because they were able to attract those people and and delegate to them. Right. You know, I mean, he, they never said, hey, I know your job better than so just do what I'm going to tell you to do. No, it's like, I don't know how to do this, but here's where we're going. So I need you on my team. And that's what happened. Um, and it's it's so it's interesting. I was doing a speech at a company and uh, we're in the middle of the workshop and the CEO throws his pen on the table and says, that's it. I'm not hiring Sharon now. I said, who's Sharon? I'm looking around the room like, what just happened? Well, she's the best mechanical engineer that I know. And I was going to pay her twice as much money. So I said, well, why don't you do that? Hire a pair twice as much? She goes, no, no. Because what you just told me, I said, I don't have a story. And she's currently working at half price for Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. He says, if I hire her in six months, she'll be bored. It'll just be a job. I'll destroy her. So I got to get my act together. And I thought, you know what? That's a great CEO to be able to learn something like that. What do you think about Elon Musk You know, laying off 80% of the people? He's seen his the price of he paid for Twitter cut in half. What's your observations of the way he's leading right now? And where do you think? Because I had another guy on my show and said he thought Elon Musk was doing exactly the right thing. He was a planner for the Navy. And he said, if you let go, he said, in the Navy, we try to run with as few people as possible, then see what we need to add on. So he said him letting go 80 percent of the people. Now he can see how many people do I really need to run this business? So he thinks it's a smart move, uh, regardless of what everybody else thinks. So what's your take as a, a leadership guy? Well, that pattern has happened a lot. I mean, during the last recession, um, um, 10 years ago, everybody had a downsize 30% on average. And everybody's like, oh, geez, we're losing all these people and how are we going to survive? When they came out of the recession, they didn't hire them back. In other words, they were still operating on two thirds of the human capital they had, and they were doing more. So in a sense, um, do we need to shake it up? Sometimes we get too bloated. Sometimes we're not letting strategy drive our hiring and structuring of our companies. And we end up getting just lost in the in tactics. And then all of a sudden we have to wake up like, oh, my God, there's a recession or there's a depression or there's something going on. And then they have to downsize. So now, quite frankly, I don't know why or what he's doing. I'd, I'd love to have a beer with Elon for about 15 minutes, and then I can answer your question. But <laughs> since I haven't had that opportunity yet, if anybody knows him, please have give me a call because I'd love to do that. I don't know what's going on. All I know is that he's done a couple of things that have been successful in the past. So I assume he knows something about what to do. 
Um, but we'll see. I mean, I, 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 but yes, I, I could agree with the Navy guy. There's, there's that, you know, do you have the right people? I remember I was scuba diving in the, and I ran into some L, um, uh, Jacques Cousteau. Uh-huh. I was working with Jacques Cousteau's. I said, how do you guys hire people? I mean, you're going out on the open oceans for like weeks at a time. And uh, they said, well, it's fairly, very easy. Uh, we get a new guy on the team and we set, we set out to the open seas. And then we do our research and we come back to port. When we leave port, if that guy is on the ship, he's on the team. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, he stays on the dock and we leave. <laughs> um, you write that there are six dangers that leaders regularly face. Fear, selfishness, arrogance, comfort, lie, uh, lone heroism, and gravity. It sounds like the six deadly sins. Why did you pick these six? It was uh, again. We were we were doing this research live, so I didn't know what was going to happen. I climbed with Chris, obviously um, in South America, but now he's off, and to a whole nother region. We're linking by phone. We're filming. He's he's filming, uh, and we're discussing these things. And it it emerged out of the conversation. It emerged out of what he was seeing, what happened, um, and all of a sudden. So I was taking notes, collecting a lot of data, looking at footage, and. And it turned out that these seem to be the most common ones that we saw. So it really emerged out of that. There was nothing, nothing special. It was just uh, seeing what was going on. Uh, what of the sections you discussed, the death zone leadership, uh, and you talked about that in the beginning about, you know, um, from your co-author. Please explain what that is and, and what we can learn from it. Yeah, the um, the death zone became a concept because of, you know, above twenty six thousand feet, eight thousand meters or so, that's the area where the body's not going to survive very long because the oxygen is not cut. I think to like it's like one third of what it should be. Um, too long, you're going to have brain damage and all kind of things. I mean, if you go into a hospital today and they take your oxygen and it's at one third the level, you're being rushed in. You got some problems. But if you're climbing, no, you're doing an aerobic exercise. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's a special place uh, that you don't want to stay too long. You just want to get out of that zone. You want to finish your summit and get down. But for us, that zone became the place where we could see how humans would would react. Because in the death zone, you don't care about motivational speakers and best-selling leadership books. You just want to survive. So how do you lead other humans? How do you um, achieve the result? How do you avoid risk? How do you, you know, all those things come to play. So we use that as sort of the, the term or the, or the label for a high risk, high urgency environment that leaders will find themselves in. Question from the audience. For people who don't have resources to have coaches with people like yourself to become better leaders. What practical advices do you have to become better leaders and be more able to tell their compelling stories more efficiently? Uh, let me see if I understand the question. I mean, if you can't afford to have a coach or or that, what, what can you do? Yeah. You know, I've, I've found, uh, especially today, uh, it used to be physically limited, but now because of Zoom and, and social media, it's not. I've found a lot of success when people of like mind get together and form their own mastermind group, you know, so depending on, and again, I don't, I don't know uh, who you are, but um, depending on your career or your profession or the industry you're in, uh, how many people uh, like you exist? I'm sure there's more than one or two. Uh, and can you uh, engage them in a community and just say, Hey, look, I've, I've got issues and then you've got issues. Let's get 10 of us together and we'll meet once every week or two uh, for about an hour and bring our issues up and see if we can help each other. And I found that that has been fabulous. I mean, there's um, like, I, I've done 2000 speeches and I, I think maybe half of those are more to were to CEOs that did this that got together in, in these, and some of these are formal membership organizations. Um, so I would, I would suggest that reach out to peers. And here, I thought you were going to say, read your books and listen to my podcast, but you didn't say either one of those things. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Maybe I should have. I really yeah, probably, yeah, probably should have. Um, <laughs> fear often grips leaders and teams, especially when a product fails, a market changes and an unexpected event like the pandemic hits. 
you write that 70% of people freeze up when uh, stressed. How should leaders handle fear and panic within themselves and then make sure the team doesn't panic as well? Learn how to die properly. This is, a, this is another controversial, politically incorrect thing, but we've done this with executive teams now 100 times in many industries. And it came out of the ancient samurai research. Um, when Oxford gave me this, this permission to, to use this manuscript that was written 700 years ago to train managers, the first chapter was on death. And I'm thinking, this isn't going to go well. So when I got into it, I began to realize it wasn't physical death. It was death of the ego. And they did that by remembering the first sentence is that you have to remember constantly that someday you must die. And it wasn't to be depressing. It was really to give power. And I think now later on, fast forward 700 years, I get a hold of this manuscript. Now I'm at Hopkins. I'm doing some brain research. I'm thinking, wait a minute, how is this affecting the ego? Because what they're talking about is is bravery and honor can occur if we get rid of our selfish instincts. And this is where death becomes the issue. And I thought, wait a minute, how many centuries have we heard this before? Die Die for the cause death before battle. I mean, death has been a common theme in leadership for so long. So what we do with executive teams to answer your question is when I say die properly, meaning, you know, what is the compelling saga that you're willing to die for? In other words, you're you're willing to sacrifice your ego for like it means more to you than your selfish tendencies. And that becomes a powerful force. And when we're and we're able to take a team to, to achieve bravery and honor at that level. And then they're willing to suffer and sacrifice together for that compelling saga. They're unstoppable. And now I know this goes against the whole happy employee movement and we need happy employees and all that, but you know, I think we've been a little overboard on the happy employee movement. <laughs> I think we haven't asked the question like, what do your people do when they're not happy? Do they turn and run or do they lock arms with you and continue forward into that? That, that risk and that fear that you're describing. So we've been teaching it the opposite. We've been teaching it. No, it's, I'll put a team to, I will bet on a team that has bravery and honor and they're willing to suffer and sacrifice against a happy employee team any day of the week. Interesting. Um, what do you think, how do you build in corporate culture people only in the office interacting face to face because that's really the only way you get to know people uh if they're only interacting with people two to three days a week how do you build that corporate culture that even would get you through tough times yeah um well yeah obviously being together with humans is what we like to do so it's really hard to um have a relationship with your tv screen although i I love all of you already so (laughs) Um, but the, uh, I find that how I've seen successful groups do this, and we've been doing this, like I said before, for thousands of years, is what symbol or symbols capture the meaning of your culture? You know, what are those symbols that, and it could be anything. I mean, I've seen companies come up with, maybe it's a logo, maybe it's uh, something that, maybe it's something they wear, maybe it's something that's on their desk, but there's something, there's a symbol that captures the meaning of who you are. So that wherever you are in the world, if you have that, you know, you're part of this team. And I've had people do that. I've had people go in for a business negotiation somewhere and they go in the guy's office and like, uh, you know, he or she's got this thing on the wall. It's like, oh, wait a minute, you're a member of that group? And all of a sudden, the whole conversation changes because, oh, I'm, I'm a member of that group too, you see. So I would say symbols, rituals, very important as well. Um, let me give, give you a great example. There's a CEO who's had a problem with remote uh, work, the Dalai Lama. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Tibetans scatter to the winds. All right. The whole Chinese thing. I mean, and now he's got he's got a community, a religious uh, uh, set of people that are now no longer in one room together and not only in one city together. And I thought it was amazing when I read this interview that uh, he had to find out how can I figure out how to get this distributed tribe to operate as one. And he knew where he went. Jewish leaders. And what were they doing? 
symbols, rituals, and magic. And he learned from the Jewish leaders of how they kept their religion going and together. And he's now hopefully doing the same thing with Tibetans. So what we're talking about here is not new. It's been used by the greatest leaders throughout history. And uh, I think we just start, need to start teaching it again. I mean, what Zelensky is doing over there with the Ukraine and those people are dying and they're not happy, that kind of feeds into what you're talking about, that people are willing to go uh, against a superpower yes. that they know they're clearly outmatched, outnumbered, out everything. Yes. And, and they're more than holding their own. In many cases, they've been able to push them back. And, and in the other guy's case, they're, the people don't even want to enter the battle, that they have to make people enter the yeah. battle. Uh, yeah. for it. So it goes and proves your point about that. Yeah, I really I really want to thank Putin and Zelensky for uh, giving us future business school case studies on leadership yeah. because it's the best contrast ever. I mean, it's just unbelievable the contribution they have made to leadership education. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been amazing, too. Uh, you wrote about phantom leadership, a term I'd never heard before. What's a phantom leader and how does that impact a company? Yeah, phantom leaders uh, came out of situations where we were called into a corporation that could not execute fast and they were losing uh, markets. They weren't adapting fast enough. They Something was wrong, but they had all the best selling books. They had hired all the best selling speakers. You know, they had seen all the TED talks. What was wrong? And um, and more than one situation when we got in and started doing sort of an anthropological uh analysis of the company, people were following other people than their managers. And that's when we began to realize that in how many companies are the true leaders, the ones that are not on the leadership chart. And so, I mean, ideally you want people to follow the leaders you've identified, but in some cases, it turns out they're following someone else. Sometimes it's pretty shocking. I mean, we had one situation where we had a a conference and we went through an exercise where we told everybody, okay, um, put this symbol on the table of the person that you would follow. And they all did it. And it turned out that none of them were managers in the organization. So this was a, a shock, just an emotional shock. I mean, but now they realized why their programs weren't executing. So what they had to do was like, okay, we get it, but they had to find out which of those leaders were aligned with their compelling saga because we're going to keep them and integrate them into the leadership. And, and which of those are not aligning with our saga, they need to be removed. And what happened is that the organization evolved to be very effective and their problems went away. So that's where the phantom leader came into play. So is there somebody there that people are following that's really not identified as part of your management staff? Uh, every company has a poor or non-performing employees, groups, business units, yet some leaders are reluctant to make changes because they've known the people for a long time or the business was once crucial. How do you get a leader to see for the greater good changes needed? Uh, this came up in that uh, ancient samurai uh, text that I put in, in the book, The Code of the Executive, and it was a chapter there. It was interesting. You want to be friendly with your people but not too much. <laughs> in other words, clearly uh, we should be teaching leadership training this way that, yeah, you want to be friendly. You want to be liked, et cetera. However, when friendliness becomes more important than strategic execution, you are no longer leading. And that's a problem as I think sometimes we have let um, friendliness, uh, uh, I guess, become the priority over strategic winning. And um, we, had, we had to stop that. If you find that that's the case, you need to reset and realize that strategy is what you're there for and not to be friendly. If you want friendly, join a country club, make friends. But to be in a business, uh, the last thing you want to do is go bankrupt with a lot of friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because they'll all walk away and glom onto the next one, right? At the end of the day, I, yeah. I see that with some of the family businesses that I work with, that they're they become so close to the employee, some employees that they just overlook the poor performance 
and mm-hmm. not thinking about how everybody else is depending on the leader to pick the very best people to put in those positions. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And I, I think that's because in an, it could be cultural to coming back to your earlier question is um, one of the things and uh, and Mark Levy was great at this because he came, he had this, this big conference. I, I, I forget which one it was, Mark, but there are all these top thinkers and thought leaders and all that. And I think the question came up like, what is, what's the definition of strategy? And Mark said, your definition when I presented it was the buzz of the conference. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah. He says, everybody talked about that for days. And here's my definition. And this is what I think is missing in a lot of companies. And maybe those of you who are listening, if you can't answer this, maybe you need to go back and get this started. Let's get a movement going here. But the definition is very simple. Definition is very simple. What does winning mean? And how are you going to do it? It's as simple as that. What does winning mean? And how are you going to do it? And a lot of companies, they've never had that opportunity to have that conversation. One of the things I thought was really interesting in the book is uh, cowardice is a very strong word. And you talked about Chris almost not living his dream, leaving outward bound to start his own venture, Earth Treks. Mm-hmm. How do you get people to get yourself and your employees out of their comfort zone to maximize their potential? Forget about building self-esteem and start building shame. Now, this was an interesting, and again, politically incorrect, but but you guys have been with me so long, so this is good. You're still here. Thank you. Um, When I read this, I thought this goes against everything we're teaching about, like everybody should get a participation award. Everybody's a winner. We don't want anybody to feel like they're a loser. And here are these guys from 700 years ago saying you can only build bravery to, 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 to if you can induce a strong sense of shame. Now, here's what they said. You know, you become samurai. Some some are born brave and some are not born brave. Some are cowards. But if in the unborn brave, if they are too ashamed to turn and run in front of their peers, they will go into battle. And after a few battles, they cannot tell the difference between the born brave and unborn brave. So how do you deal with cowardice? I think induce bravery. Now, several options. Obviously, that's an extreme example, but I think metaphorically, we can see some ideas here. Uh, One is, do you have a compelling saga worth dying for? And is there, can you induce a a motivation as uncomfortable as it is for people to move forward, to take on those risks, to to risk something which, you know, may be very uncomfortable. And we've done this when we transformed executive teams. We would set this up in a way where it's like, you need to go here, but are you too weak to get there? And all of a sudden the shame starts <laughs> increasing. And then once they break and say, yeah, it's bring it on, then that's it. That's all you need. You need to pull that together. But you're not going to do it by building everybody's self-esteem. I mean, she's... I think we need to go back to the old school ways. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you there, uh, but I'm hoping you're going to send me a trophy after this for doing this podcast. So. <laughs> no, no. Uh, perseverance is one of the most, and we're almost out of time here, but I've so enjoyed it. I could spend hours with you. Perseverance is one of the most important attributes for anyone, especially entrepreneurs. How do you get employees to calmly deal with an overcome adversity without pointing fingers, being self-destructive and or quitting, which is probably happening at big uh, tech companies like Meta and Twitter. I think in those situations, uh, there is there is no uh, no saga to die for. There's no there's no compelling reason to be together. It's just a job. Uh, these kinds of things you're describing are, are generally infighting uh, behaviors that come from uh, strategic confusion. In other words, they're tactical, they're tactical conflicts. They're not strategic conflicts. And so what we try to help executive teams realize is that until you're being driven by a strategic context, it's easy for people to degrade into this infighting and to this territorial issues and this blaming and all. But, but if you're able to say, hey, Here's what here's what winning means and how we're going to do it. Who's with me and who's not. And in that space, let's figure out how to win. And then you bring this bring this out, bring these behaviors out. Is finger pointing helping us win? No. Then what can we do next? 
you know, the, is protecting withholding information or protecting your your silo. Is that helping us win? If not, what can we do about that? I think engaging people in this journey is what leaders do. But sometimes we're afraid to bring it up. And what happens is this stuff happens. People then start leaving. And well, we've got all this infighting going on. I do a test when I do my speeches. I say, how much of your time is wasted? Your organization's time is wasted with people getting involved in uh, dangerous, unproductive, destructive behavior. I call it dud behavior. It's in the book, High to Leadership. Dud behavior. And they write down anonymously. And we collect the data. 20 to 80% range, average 50%. So I think half of us are losing our people. They're already at work. Maybe they didn't quit, but they're lost because half their time is spent dysfunctional behavior. And that's a problem. But so, if we get back, you know, we have so, so pushing people under the old uh, proverbial bus is not the way to go, huh? I haven't seen it work yet. Uh, <laughs> unless you have a business for doing that. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, Don, I want to say thank you so much for spending the hour with us. It was terrific. Uh, you and Mark, you got to come back again when the new book yeah. uh, comes out. So we we'll definitely have to. You have to let me know so we can schedule you because we're already scheduled to May of next year. So I need to know when that book so we get you right on. All so right. I want to thank everybody for coming and listening to you today. It was terrific. And uh, I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. See you next Friday. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.